0: i'm gabby and i'm kim and we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not so famous cases of
1: moida ghosts legends and lore with a healthy dose of debunking
0: not really debunking anything tonight, unfortunately. I was going to say, today uh, is like
1: the only exception. <laughs> it's, I kind of, of wish we were debunking something. Oh, dear Lord, I wish we were debunking this episode. So um, fun fact, listeners, uh, I watched a fun show, which maybe people wouldn't call it fun, uh, called Midnight Mass. We've talked about it in the past mm-hmm. on Creepy Critics uh, Corner. Creepy Critics Corner. Mm-hmm. Kim watched it, talked about it. We could talk about it more later at some point. But it really um, got me going about how do people get so brainwashed? How does this happen? Why is religion so powerful? And I started to go down the rabbit hole of cults. And I thought it would be a nice way, maybe not nice, but at least uh, educational and historical topic to cover one of the more famous cults in the last 50 years, um, With Jim Jones and the People's Temple and Jonestown, which so much of Midnight Mass took pieces of what actually happened at Jonestown and with Jim Jones and put it into that show. Um, So it was just a really, you know, interesting way to see how things transfer into media and entertainment from actual factual things that happened we've seen lots of different things with cults uh with horror with Mm -hmm. movies with Mm -hmm. shows american horror story cult um that season had probably i think was one of the more uh triggering for me to watch because of when it came out and the timing of everything uh felt like truly one of the more scary american horror stories Mm -hmm. because it felt real Um, And it was a realistic situation to be in, especially when Trump was elected. And it was just a wild ride. So it's just a really, I've always found cults to be fascinating. I've always wanted to understand the psychology behind it, what gets people involved, how really does this happen? So this episode, we are going to be talking about Jonestown, Jim Jones and People's Temple, because I think it's worth talking about, especially in this day and age. Um, There's going to be a lot of things that certain people might not want to hear. There's a trigger warning right now for you. Talk about mass suicide uh, and death. There is uh, a talk of racism within this due to the fact that all of this took place during the civil rights movement. Um, In the 60s and
0: 70s. The 60s and 70s just get their, you know, nice big, hey,
1: racism. Racism. I mean, in all of our history, though, like in so many periods of time. But it's also very relevant now. And this uh, topic of Jonestown is actually going to be covered in two episodes. So we're going to do a two-parter for you here. Um, This first episode is going to be mainly focused on the history behind Jim Jones, what happened, and the second episode will take place closer to when um, things started to go more awry. And for those of you that do not want to hear anything about cults or Jim Jones or Jonestown, feel free to skip this episode but for those of you that actually want to understand the history of how things happened, I did a pretty significant deep dive. So before we get into it, I just want to give you some of my references of things that I used to research this topic. Um, thanks to our friend Kim Dowthit, She bought me this book, The Road to Jonestown. Um, Jim Jones and People's Temple by Jeff Gwynn. Very thorough. Dude, this is like a 500-page book. I did not know what I was getting myself <laughs> oh, into. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it is. Ooh. It is thorough, and I have. It's it's a commitment. It is a commitment. It's it's exceptionally researched. Yes, exceptionally. it's insanely done.
1: Mm-hmm. The details within it made. This topic so tough for me to narrow down of what to talk about and what not to talk about. So, I will give everyone a heads up that this is not going to be a, a verbatim reading of the Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and People's Temple. If you want to read that book, highly recommend. This is kind of yeah. like an early. This is basically my creepy critics corner up top, um, and I also watched the docu series Jonestown: Terror in the Jungle. I watched it on Prime, but I, I was able to utilize um, the Sundance channel through it. So if you have access to that, that's how you can watch that. And actually, Jeff Gwynn was one of the main people who put that together, and he's in that docuseries as well. So it was nice to see that overlap of, of support and information and knowing that the source was really, really relevant. And a lot of the people involved in Jonestown are actually in the docu-series. Yeah. So that was really fascinating to, after reading some of this, actually see the people that survived and lived through Mm -hmm. um, this period of time. Because some did. They did. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about it later on too. Uh, The other book I read was Killer Cults uh, by Stephen Singular. Um, A bunch of different cults are in that one, but I focused mainly on People's Temple. So having said that, let's get into this. So, for those of you who don't know about Jim Jones or Jonestown or People's Temple, I'll bring you to the date that will be stuck in everyone's minds for the rest of time November 18th, 1978, in Guyana. Quote For more than four years, members of an American group called the People's Temple had been carving out a 3,000 acre farm community in the heart of the near impenetrable jungle in Guyana, led by Jim Jones. It was called Jonestown, but it was far from a happy place. Leo Ryan, congressman of the Bay Area in California, and five others were shot and killed at the Port Kaituma outpost after a visit to Jonestown. Shortly thereafter, about 910 people died in the poison ritual of the people's temple, mass suicide. The news reporters described it as shades of Auschwitz. There were bodies everywhere, awful and orderly, hand in hand, arms around each other's shoulders, men, women, and hundreds of children. It was a horrible sight. Why would so many people agree to commit mass suicide? How did we get there? They even took their children with them. Jim Jones said, quote, if we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace, end quote. What started as spreading a message of equality and inclusivity for all during a time of civil unrest ended in tragedy. Again, how? How did this happen? And when exactly did things start to take a dark turn? That's the ultimate question. Everyone asked this when it popped up on the news. It was all over the place when all this happened. And ultimately, Jim Jones was the root of the cause, with his people's temple blindly supporting him. Ex-members of the group said that he had a way of reaching into your emotions and spread the message of equality for all and inclusivity during the civil rights movement. He spoke to discrimination and injustice in the world during a time of civil unjust and brought people together as a community by helping each other out and taught people to put the self aside for the greater good. But what was the greater good? He actually allowed people to think that they could make a difference, and he accepted people who were rejected socially elsewhere and brought together a massive group of people. But before we can even get into the details of how that even happened, we have to go back to the beginning. Who was Jim Jones as a person? So let's travel back in time to 1930. We are in Lynn, Indiana, rural Indiana. Jim Thurman Jones Sr. was his father. He actually was a victim to mustard gas. He drank a whole lot and lived on disability checks. While his family financially supported him and his wife Lynetta, Lynetta Jones was Jim Jones' mother, and James Warren Jones was born on May 13, 1931. After the birth of baby Jim, Jim Senior had a full blown nervous breakdown, actually had to be hospitalized, and a attending physician described Jim as quote nervous, emotional, and irritable. They actually lived on a farm where Lynetta literally did everything. And while she was doing this, she was seeing all the other women in the community living these beautiful, comfortable lives in these beautiful, large homes. And she just was fully resentful. She also didn't do the one thing that everyone was expected to do. Conformity was the bedrock of good citizenship in Indiana at this time. The main purpose of life was to fit in and to be like everybody else, and Lynetta did not fit in at all. Neither did Jim. Lynetta actually constantly cursed, which I think is funny, and didn't seem to be quite as ladylike as the other women in town. When people called her out on it, she didn't really care or do much about it. She just went on her own merry way. Um, And Jim's earliest and most enduring lessons from his mother were, quote, There was always some them out to get you, and reality was whatever you believed. So it was instilled early in Jim Jones' life that someone was always out there to get him, and it stuck with him. He learned alienation from his mom, and, quote, As a small child, he had a talent for explaining away actions that seemingly contradicted his words. These patterns started very early. He also sought approval from others outside of his family. Obviously, coming from a broken-ish home, knowing that your mother is an outcast, your dad is unable to do much or contribute at all, uh, he needed to be accepted from others. And he bonded with one of his neighbors who lived across the street. Her name was Myrtle Kennedy. And she was an older woman and didn't have any kids. She would take him in and give him snacks. He would always complain that he was hungry and wander around her front area of her house until she would bring him in. And her husband was actually the pastor in Lynn's Nazarene church. So they were very religious. And Myrtle's greatest pleasure was wooing people from other churches to join her church, which was looked down upon greatly by everybody in the community. You stayed within whatever church you were in. You didn't try to take somebody out of it. But Myrtle didn't really care. She was like, you know what? I want more people to join my church. I'm going to try to convince them. And guess who was watching her do this? Little, Little Jimmy Jones was watching her do this. And she started to take Jim with her to church. And it was the first time he ever experienced anything religious. His mom, his parents didn't really take him to church ever. That's also why they were looked down upon is because they didn't attend church like the rest of the community. And uh, Jim had yet to explore religion. Lynetta had only talked to him about uh, reincarnation and destiny, actually. So instead of talking about religion, she said that, quote, sometimes in a life, Which was not the only life, a person's grand destiny was thwarted by those unappreciative or jealous of someone else's superiority. Literally, Lynetta planted the seed for Jim, and Myrtle watered it. So the church became a place for Jim to find peace and solace. He actually um, was very curious about religion. And ended up joining five different churches, which I think is interesting that that many churches would allow him to join five different churches at the same time. He was even um, baptized and swore allegiance to every single one, whether it was Methodist, Quaker, Church of Christ, Nazarene, what have you, every type of church in the neighborhood he joined. And did you know that? I wasn't sure if you knew about that.
0: Uh, it's something, I mean, I when I read the book probably, but it wasn't one of
1: the facts that stuck with me. <laughs> oh, okay. So I think something that I took pleasure in in this research is finding these weird little tidbits of information that I don't think a lot of people know. And I found to be really fascinating because it really shows you how he got to where he got to. And one of the things that really impacted him was the, the guy on the stage. Uh-huh. The guy up front always got all the attention in the churches. Even as a small child, he would see this. He would wonder, how did the preachers get the audience so enthralled with what he was talking about? And Jim Jones knew in that moment that he was going to be a minister one day. Huh. He had a flair for the dramatic. Huh. He would like to actually, one time, I thought this was a fun little story, one time uh, a kid witnessed him in the middle of the woods, standing on a stump with his hand pressed over his heart, preaching to nobody just in the middle of the woods. Hmm. And he remembered it as, quote, really putting on a show all about how Jesus loves you and how you have to believe in him if you want to get saved and go to heaven, end quote. Now, even though that seemed a little strange to this kid, you know, he was still a kid and kids do dumb stuff all the time. So I'm sure you're familiar with how kids do dumb stuff all the time. all too well. So, you know, it was like okay to excuse weird stuff every once in a while. And generally speaking, he was liked by a lot of the kid's parents in town. He was a good kid. He was very respectful, very polite. But he also cried a lot, which for a young boy was not super common. And he also cursed all the time, which just seemed contradictory and odd. I'm sure he learned it from Lynetta. And as a young kid, he talked a lot about death and its inevitability which
0: also seems kind of strange. I, I will comment. Uh, having spent a fair amount of time with young children, they talk about death all the time. Oh, really? I oh guess I don't
1: hang out with god! Yeah, kids. Like,
0: they're more morbid than I am. Uh, that and says that's And that's saying something. The amount of times, like, even today, I, I'm teaching this class of K through second graders, and they're writing their own play, and I had to stop them. They were like, we're going to leave a ransom note, and it needs to be deadly. Like, somebody could die. And I'm like, okay. Okay, kids.
1: Maybe it's the drama in the kids. Maybe like the dramatic kids like to talk about death because they're dramatic. When I'm
0: in the classrooms, like I'm seeing this left and right. So like, little kids talk about death. Little boys cry. Little boys cry more than little girls. (laughs) You know, this is good validation.
1: I I like like that you're pointing these things out. I mean, like the, the,
0: the 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 all little kids cry. Like all little kids cry. But like, I don't know. None of this for me. Is raising a red flag, so I'm just like, yeah,
1: kids do okay, that shit. Okay, not yet. I think that <laughs> yet, yet is no, our no. keyword. I mean, like, <laughs>
0: they're not, you know, we haven't hit a point where he's, like, gutting cats. So, you know. It's funny you mention that. <laughs>
1: I, I mention that for a reason. Um, so, you know. We haven't hit the McDonald's triad things. yet. Yes, yeah, so, well, we're <laughs> getting there. So even though he talked about death and its inevitability, he actually convinced a group of kids. Um, by the way, I think a lot of funny stories – having to do with his childhood and teenage years, are a lot of him convincing people to do things for him or with him. Smart kid. Funny enough, right? Um, He convinced a group of kids to go to a casket warehouse and lay in empty caskets to see what it felt like to be dead.
0: Not the weirdest thing I've heard a kid do.
1: To Kim, this is not weird. To
0: other people, maybe it's a little weird. When you teach children... (laughs) it becomes less weird it's it's i like i wish i could say
1: this is the weirdest thing i've heard a kid do okay but wait there's more but there's more he recruited kids to actually come to roadkill funerals he would put on funerals dead birds for usually but sure yeah dead animals that he oh, yeah. found on the road i've seen and kids hold funerals for dead birds i've seen that too but that's like not going into the road and grabbing a dead animal and then putting it in the ground and holding a full-blown funeral for it.
0: No, it's picking up a dead bird, putting it in a box and holding a funeral for it. Snakes, tomato, too. Tomato, tomato. Snakes. They like dead birds and dead snakes because those are easy to find.
1: I'm just well, saying. He, I'm just saying. It's fine. You can <laughs> scully this whole thing if you want. I, I didn't it still think i be sculling
0: anything. I'm just saying, like, again, we haven't hit the, like, McDonald Triad stuff yet, but none of this all by itself is actually that bizarre.
1: Well, apparently he had a bunch of kids that would watch these funerals and they would get uncomfortable and they would want to leave and he scared them into staying.
0: See, that's bizarre.
1: That's, that's crossing weird.
0: the line. Like, I've seen kids hold mock funerals before with dead animals that they find or or they have an impulse to want... That. I guess maybe that's what I see more. There's an impulse to want to hold a funeral for it. They find something dead and they're like, I want to bury it. I want to do something to it so it can... You know, kid logic, so it can go to heaven? Yeah, no, this and that different. might be the thing,
1: too. But that's, yeah, but that's this the is thing, a different it could level. be with, like, a good intention, but sure. to, like, get to threaten someone for not wanting to stay, that's weird. No, that's messed up. <laughs> that's crossed the And so, it's a little weird. It's a little um, weird. A little weird. I feel like that'll be a, a hashtag for this topic, it's is hashtag weird. that's weird. <laughs> it's, I feel like it's also
0: hashtag, oh, yeah, Kim's seen a kid do it. <laughs> Kim's seen a kid do that. <laughs> Hashtag kids do that. Kids do that. I Hashtag like that kids one. kids do we that. We can do that. Let's yep. do that.
1: So uh, on top of this weird stuff, he also briefly claimed to have special powers that were conferred to him by the almighty God, which kids are creative. Maybe that's a common thing that we hear.
0: Yeah.
1: But at this time, World War II was happening. <clears throat> and a lot of the boys in Lynn would play war games. And want to be the hero. Wanted to be the allied soldiers in these little games. But guess who Jim wanted to be? Jesus. Hitler.
0: Oh my god! That's right! I forgot about that. Not Jesus. Very opposite of Jesus. He had a Hitler fascination that's rather alarming. He
1: had what what I would like to call a Hitler obsession, almost. Um, He would literally order kids around and tell them to do things and would smack them in the legs with stuff if they wouldn't do it and he actually this is like a young like he's not even a teenager at this point he's like a young kid and jim studied hitler he watched the speeches that hitler would make And the rhythm of how he spoke and the Mm. energy that he built in his speeches. He had a very specific
0: rhythm he spoke with. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it wasn't that far off from the way that preachers spoke either. So he was seeing preachers in all these five churches he was a part of. Uh And then he was seeing Hitler. And this is a quote. Hitler was a poor boy who would emerged to lead a mighty nation thanks to his own determination and charisma. End quote. Mm. (laughs) Never mind, asterisk, sorry, uh, Jewish person in the room. Never mind killing six million Jews. Oh, Uh, God. No no big deal. No big deal. You know, (laughs) make sure that you're praising the dude who started it all. Mm. Um, But hey, as a young kid, that's really influential. Yeah, absolutely. this is also a quote, when Hitler committed suicide in April 1945, Mm -hmm. thwarting enemies who sought to capture and humiliate him, Jimmy was impressed. Ew. Which says so much.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So remember that. Remember that little bit of information. We'll come back to it. Another thing that was weird was that he offered explanations of sex to his younger cousins, made them really uncomfortable. Yeah, um, and they. I'm uncomfortable <laughs> hearing that. As a child, too, Uh like you're explaining this to other kids. This was like very taboo. You're not supposed to talk about these things. Uh But he really like loved talking about the things that he knew he wasn't supposed to talk about, Uh liking the things he knew he wasn't supposed to like. And he once described himself as, quote, the trash of the neighborhood, unquote. Um, A young man looking for his way out of his circumstances and a path to salvation because it was so terrible where he was. In high school, he wasn't exactly liked, but people also were gravitating to him because he had a penchant for compelling conversation. Mm. And anyone who talked to him was fascinated by him and his ability to elicit sympathy. Mm. So they might not have liked him, but they listened to him. They listened to him. And that's the first step? Mm Mm-hmm. He also dressed really nicely for a high schooler. He dressed in Sunday school or Sunday clothes daily, and he stuck Mm. out like a sore thumb. He also had very dark hair, dark Uh features. was Uh very prominent looking. And when he was 14, he did something pretty impressive. He actually organized an entire town baseball league all on his own, all by himself, and he managed the Lynn team, and he loved telling people what to do and how to do it. There was a sidebar story about this where he literally dropped a puppy on the floor and laughed about it. And that made me so angry. But it also was exactly what you're talking about with, like, hurting animals as a small Uh child. Uh It's one of the signs. also – no surprise here. He wasn't great with girls. (laughs) Gee,
0: I'm shocked.
1: He he didn't know how to take no for an answer. Ew. Um, So another thing that he did in high school – which I think – I'm going to preface this by saying I think it's something that you and I would appreciate and think is funny, but most other people might not. Maybe our audience might. I I don't know. But I think it's worth talking about. Um, He staged a funeral for the opposing team at a pep rally.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's funny. I'm sorry. That's funny.
1: (laughs) I knew you would think it's funny. funny. But also just the sentiment of it is like pretty messed up. I mean, it's ballsy. It absolutely is. It makes a statement, does it, it not? It makes a statement. He actually conducted a memorial and delivered a sermon for all of the dead opponents. Wow. The classmates loved it. They ate it up. So this was a bit of intrigue for his fellow classmates and honestly a mixed bag of emotions amongst youngsters in his neighborhood and in his age group. Huh. So shortly after that his parents split, it was in the year uh it was in 1948 in the year between his junior and senior year of of high school. And he actually ended up graduating early uh in the de- in December of 1948 when he was 17. And Jim and his mom uh Lynetta moved to Richmond, Indiana th- at the same time. He ended up getting a job at a ho- at a hospital as a hospital orderly when he was 17 right out hmm. of high school. Hmm. And this is where he met his future wife, Marceline Baldwin. Fun fact, he thought about getting into hospital administration because then he could tell doctors what to do. (laughs) So he always liked telling people what to do. Wow. Um, At an early age, Jim believed that he was destined for and deserving of greatness. On June 12, 1949, James Warren Jones married Marceline May Baldwin at Trinity Methodist Church in Richmond. They were young, but they really liked each other a lot. And soon after that, Jones got into a pretty big argument with Marceline's family about race, segregation, and intermarriage. And he literally made Marceline choose him over his family and didn't allow her to see them again. Hmm. Now, speaking of which, racism and segregation in rural Indiana was a big thing. Um, it was a big thing all over during this period of time and into the, you know, 50s, 60s. I, I mean, we talked about this at the beginning of the episode. This mm-hmm. Racism has been it, rampant. It's,
0: we're built on a racist country. Everything Society. is built on that. It's, yeah, yeah, it's we're not
1: a great situation. And, yeah. But yeah. there were also, <laughs> like, I mean, it's that's an understatement of, of like, the century. <laughs> it's one way to put it. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that there were... A lot of people who supported segregation and Marceline's family supported it and didn't support interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. And something that Jim Jones believed on at an early age was equality for everyone. And so he was really offended when he heard this. And that's part of the reason why he was like, no, Marceline, you choose your family, you choose me. And he was so convincing as Jim Jones that she chose him. I don't want to give him credit
0: for anything, but I'm also like, damn it.
1: You know what, that's the thing that I had the hardest, I had the hardest time. This is like the one thing when I was doing all this research that I had the hardest time with Uh is the fact that he, and we'll get into this in a little bit, but the fact that he was so adamant about inclusivity and, you know, desegregation and treating everyone with respect, no matter what their skin color or income level was like that. I identify with that. I know you identify with that. A yeah. lot of people identify with that, and so As they I can should. see why people, <laughs> yeah, I could see why people would want to listen to him if he was talking about these things, especially in this radical time when civil rights started to be talked about more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in Randolph County, there weren't that many black people in the area. It was mostly a predominantly white neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, and. But you would see some some black people come in during the weekends to sell their their materials, to trade from their farms that they had. Um, But, you know, they weren't really considered equals at the time. And Jim hated it. He started visiting black churches and surrounding communities um, and thrived over the energy in the churches. He just wanted to learn more about how other people were living. And the excitement was contagious in these churches. He loved it. People seemed to be having the best time and not acting like they were fulfilling any kind of obligation, but just having a good time, having fun. And everybody was welcome, whites included. So it, he felt really welcome there himself, but wondered why it wasn't the same way on the other side of the tracks and really wanted to have an environment like this. So he ended up making friends with a lot of the black families and welcomed them into his home. He wanted to get to know them and understand what their lives were like, understand their treatment in his neighborhood and the surrounding areas. Ultimately, while it could have been, you know, well-intentioned initially, this was utilized as intel in how Mm -hmm. to gain Mm -hmm. traction and a following. Mm -hmm. So in 1952, he decided to take a step in the direction of finally becoming a minister, and he became a student pastor at Somerset Southside Methodist Church in a lower-income white neighborhood in Indianapolis. And he was 21 years old, and he knew he found his life's work. This is what he wanted to do. But it wasn't actual work. It was volunteer work. He wasn't formally a staff member. He wasn't getting paid. And so he figured, you know what? I'm going to learn. That's the whole point of being a student pastor, right, is to learn. So he learned what worked there. And based on the sermons and gospels spread by preachers, one of the biggest things that they talked about in this church was healings. Quote, driving out demons, curing cancer or other diseases, making the lame walk and the blind see by the laying on of hands or loudly petitioning the Lord, doing these things successfully and with flair, guaranteed not only fame and money, but also allegiance by impressed members of the audience. And Jim Jones said, if these sons of bitches can do it, then I can too. Uh. He initially started to do this by using his memory. Uh-huh. He started to mingle with people, eavesdropping on their conversations, and then taking notes. And then when he would address people during a sermon... He would bring them up by name and reveal a detail of their life that only God would have told them. John Edwards, you bastard. Who does this sound like? What does this sound like to you, Kim? John Edwards. But why? Explain. What did John (laughs) Edwards do? (laughs) Sorry, I'm being a dick. Um,
0: John Edwards is a, a, a medium. And uh, he had a TV show it was like crossing over with John Edwards or something. And he was renowned for, I'm going to say like allegedly so that we don't get sued. Allegedly. For saying allegedly. Uh, no, he, you know, in the 40 minute episode or whatever you would watch of, of him being a psychic and contacting the dead, what they don't show is the like six to eight hours of things he's getting wrong because there was allegedly. With mediums like this, allegedly, they put microphones and plants in the audience to learn mm-hmm. details, allegedly, about alleged people. And <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to say allegedly a million times to not in any way, shape or form get our ass sued for anything that I allegedly have said. But uh, allegedly, <laughs> but, um, no, it's it's a common trick for, well, my God, like Nightmare Alley, if any of you saw Nightmare Alley, like they did similar shit like it's it's yeah. it's a practice that has existed since i mean again to your point spiritualism and yeah. the fox sisters and all that mm-hmm. shit it is a long 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 tradition of conning people into thinking you are contacting their dead relatives by uh gathering information in a nefarious manner. So sorry, I went off on a whole little thing.
1: No, that was exactly (laughs) what I wanted you to do. So thank you. You wanted to trigger me, Gabby. I'm sorry, but it makes for good content. It does. So um, to your point, Jones is a showman. Mm. He liked drama. So this was feeding it.
0: I have to say, I do have to say, like, I, I... I do have a weird respect for the charlatan who can convince people of this kind of thing. Because it it like, we're we're not we're not looking at, you know, all the dead people later. We're looking just specifically, yeah, no, this is the beginning of it. But but commanding Mm -hmm. attention like that, like being able to convince to to also, you have to believe it yourself to some level to yeah. pull this off for sure and there is I uh, it's not a good power but to have that power it's fascinating it maybe that's what I should say it's fascinating it's I'm honestly fascinated it, by people it reminds
1: like this. me of like uh I don't know a superhero movie where someone has a power that's going to be used for good or evil, and how and they, is it going to be? They used? use it for evil. This is for evil. Mm-hmm. Like I think what's so messed up about you know this situation is it's intended to be good initially. Good well, is the initial approach. It's, it's that skewing, though. I mean, like this is the problem with with B- I, and
0: I grew up Catholic. Hmm. That's why Midnight Mass hit me the way it did. Uh Which I have since it was
1: re- great Oh,
0: yeah, and I've since <laughs> so. retired. So, you know, but um it's it's in any in I mean, and you've made this point twisting a belief system. Mm Because I don't even want to just say religion because it goes beyond
1: religion. Oh, no, it goes way beyond that. This is mostly about social justice, too.
0: Exactly. Twisting a belief system to a point where you believe this so fervently, but you twist it and you twist it and you're doing it over a long period of time and in some ways so slowly that those it's it's the it's the frog in the boiling water. People don't realize what's happening because the water is turning, it's getting warm so slowly that the next thing they know the water's boiling and they're like, wait, how did I get here?
1: That's the ultimate question.
0: And it's. The frog
1: wouldn't have jumped into a pot of boiling water. No.
0: And the frog jumped into the water thinking the water was good. And safe. And safe. And, and nourishing. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Um
0: and the next point. and the next thing they know the water is killing them.
1: Mhm. And that is the best analogy for Jonestown. <laughs> I can't even it's, say thank you for that. No, that it's it's perfect. Um but I mean, you know, going back to this showmanship Mm -hmm. because we'll, we'll, we'll ramble forever. (laughs) Um, but also there's lots of, you know, we're going to bring this back up as we see this happening, because this is going to continue. This was just the beginning of the healings of him where he learned, learned it from essentially. Mm -hmm. And what he was noticing with the Somerset location was that all the people that were in the the church were white. He didn't want to just talk to white people. He wanted to talk about social justice to black people and to anyone else who wanted to hear his message. And, Somerset didn't want black people in their congregation. It was very segregated. And, you know, they didn't really want to do what Jones was doing. And Jones didn't really have any clout either. He was still a student. And so there's conflicting information out there of either, you know, Jones quit and left because they were, you know, racist and they didn't want black people in their community. And then other people Mm -hmm. will say, you know, Jones wasn't a great fit. He kind of was going off doing these weird things and we did not identify with it. Whatever story you want to believe, in 1955, Jones ends his relationship with Somerset to start his own place of worship, revolving around his inclusive values. And this was called community unity. (laughs) Say that 10 times fast. Community unity. Community unity. Community unity. Community unity. (laughs) I like community unity
0: better. Community.
1: Community. Community Community. unity. Also, it's just redundant. But anyway, that was the initial it's name. It's and redundant.
0: It's repetitive and redundant.
1: What she said. Um, this was actually <laughs> People's Temple. So initially, the original name was Community Unity.
0: <sighs> sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't help that snort. It just came out. It just happens. came out. It happens.
1: But I can understand why he changed the name. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, somebody was probably like, hey, bro. ah) uh- <laughs> This is, you know, you know, because like the second
0: anyone's drunk, they which, didn't drink. Well, yeah, sorry. I was going to Catholics again. Um, <laughs> I'm getting fired from my household. And you live alone. That says a lot. Um, uh, mostly men of anyone in the Douthat household. Is listening oh, to this. OK. I'm fired <laughs> for some of the fired. shit I'm saying about Catholics. I mean, they're lovely.
1: So People's Temple was the first uh, integrated church in Indiana, and Jones, because of this, became a hero in the African-American neighborhood, in the movement of you know speaking up for people that needed to have a voice. And he actually helped a lot of people who were defeated within poverty, who felt like they were just really helpless and couldn't really find a home for themselves, for what they would want to believe in. Because a lot of the churches that people in the Black community would go to talked about a better life after death, but not necessarily a better life during life. And so this gave people more hope to think, you know, maybe things can change and we can create an environment that's more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And so that's what really Jones spoke to. And the first 25 people in his church were all elderly Black women. Mm. And this story is really interesting. One of the um, women in that group really needed help with her electrical service. And it was one of those situations where she was having this problem, something wasn't working, and she complained to the company multiple times. She still paid her bills, Uh but no one was ever doing anything about it. No one was ever fixing it, and she was expected to pay the bill no matter what, and they were threatening to turn off her electricity if she didn't pay her bill, even though she was having problems. Uh And in one of the first... um, sermons that jones did he asked people like what do you need what do you need help with and she stood up picked up her hand and said i need help with this and in front of everyone jones wrote a letter to the electric company and had the entire congregation sign the letter and what they ended up doing was jones then took the letter and hand delivered it to the Mm -hmm. right person at the electrical company asking to solve the problem immediately for this poor, defeated woman, and it worked. They did it. They fixed it. And so this was hard evidence of not just, this is what you can do to make your life better. He actioned things. It's powerful. And that was never forgotten. Yeah. So no one had really done anything like this for people that were underserved in the past, especially a white man. Yeah. So... This woman was now instantly loyal. Words spread like wildfire, and change was starting to happen. So Jones was actually, you you said it before, you have to believe in whatever you're preaching. Jones fully believed in his convictions. He was Uh sincere, and he used religion to promote integration and equality, Mm. and he acted on it. So soon, this small space that was a little tiny church he was using was overflowing with people, and so he took his um, preaching to the road. And when he got to Cincinnati, so many people had heard about him that the venue that he was preaching in only fit a thousand people, and there were 200 people that had to be turned away. Hmm. So. The word was spreading about Jones and everything that he talked about, and he had to incorporate like-minded white people to his church, too. It couldn't just be like all a whole black church that one white man was leading. He wanted to integrate. The whole point was to integrate. And so, quote, Jones was certain that given sufficient time, he could make good socialists out of anyone, no matter why they originally Mm. joined. So he would speak to the needs of the people that he would want to join. Um, he started to show healings more. And that won over a lot of white people, a lot of different white followers. That's what they saw in their churches. That's what he remembered from Somerset. Mm. So he started to do more healings. And now he used props. He actually would get chicken guts, would allow them to rot for a little bit. And he would have an assistant who would be in on it, right? Like a magician or like someone from, I don't know, Nightmare Alley, um, who would join in on the act and he would showcase that he removed this cancer quote unquote from this person look it's physically in the person's hand oh. this is the cancer that he's now removed healing her it's some but he shit. wouldn't let, he wouldn't let anyone get close enough to see what it was or not. to touch it yeah. and would tell people if you get too close or if you touch it then you will get the cancer uh. So to anyone in on the secret, quote, their leader's methods were sometimes questionable or even plain deceptive, but it was all right because Jim was doing what he had to do in order to build his own mighty church and bring equality to all. So that's how they excused it. But the way that Jones really got people was through empathy. He knew what it was like to be poor and powerless. He grew up that way. Obviously, he was white, so he didn't know (laughs) racism quite the same. But he really could put himself in other people's shoes, and people saw that, and they liked it, and it gained him persuasion and influence. Mm -hmm. One Mm. of the people that he really looked up to was Father Divine. His name was George Baker, and he was a black preacher in the 1920s who founded the International Peace Mission Movement. Hmm. Um, He actually had a multiracial congregation and preached to avoiding sexual acts, which uh, Jones later took on for himself. He also empowered his followers through political and financial action and talked about reincarnation. And he directly influences Jones' racial consciousness. Uh Jones really looked up to this guy. He actually ended up building a relationship with Father Divine and his wife, Mother Divine, and strategized that, you know, Father Divine's going to die one day and he talks about reincarnation. So maybe, Uh just maybe, I will tell all of his followers That now Father Divine is now in my body, and I am now Father Divine, so all his followers should come follow me. Before that even happened, he took the concept of mother and father Uh to his church, and then people started calling him Father and Marceline Mother. That's where that came from. And he later claimed, after Father Divine's death in 1965... That Father Divine actually did reincarnate himself into Jones. It's not how reincarnation works, but okay. Nope, sure isn't. (laughs) Um, I have notes. I have notes. So um, Mother Divine gets pissed, rightfully. She's still alive. She's seeing. Yeah, she'd be like, "Oh, excuse me, sir, uh, I have a problem." (laughs) And so she expels Jones from the movement. Doesn't want his followers being a part of it. Nothing ends up coming out of it. Um, but the one thing that Jones also took away from Father Divine was that having enemies real or imagined was invaluable in recruiting and retaining followers. So what was he going to have to do? He had to continue to have enemies in order to relate with people and bring them in. Quote, if he wasn't moving racist mountains, at least he flattened some bumps, end quote. And at the same time, he preached to his respective audience. So he brought in those white people by doing those miracles, created those healings. If he had adamant Bible followers, he would preach about the Bible forever and how that was the main main thing that got everybody going and brought everyone together. If he had more black people in his audience, he spoke to socialism and equality. If he had activists, he actually spoke badly about the Bible and said that it encouraged separation of people. So, like, depending on the day that you caught him, he might be preaching something polar opposite from the previous day, depending on who was in his audience. Hmm. But his message was always very stark. Quote, brotherhood, all races together. You were accepted just as you were. You were not judged by the way you looked and how much education you had or how much money you had, end quote. Hmm. But it went further. To show that he wasn't just talk, he and Marceline adopted three Korean children, Agnes, Stephanie, and Lou. Stephanie tragically died of a car accident shortly after, Mm. and they also adopted a half-Native American child and a black child who they named Jim Jones Jr.
0: Mm.
1: Jim Jones Jr. is still alive today. He is in the documentary. I remember that. It is powerful. Um, But Jones ended up calling them the Rainbow family. Mm. Marceline and Jones actually had a son of their own, Stephen Jones who is also alive and also in the documentary. And he later voiced that he resented the name the Rainbow Family. He said it was all for show. Again, showmanship. So Jones was appointed the head of the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission in 1961. Things were starting to change. He was actually making an impact locally um, within Indianapolis and Indiana, and he worked to desegregate restaurants, hospitals, and the city's police department, which is super powerful in showing that he actually was making a difference in the things that he was preaching. Uh-huh. And he represented a reasonable approach to change. And by the end of 1961, Indianapolis was significantly more integrated, specifically because of Joan's efforts. Huh. So, like, cool. Like, I, I like that that happened, but this is making me feel very, like, conflicted because I know where this led. So- yeah. You know, Jones and the People's Temple generally worked to help the needy and provide food and shelter to those who needed it all over, whether they were elderly, mentally ill, drug addicts. They had a recovery system. They had nursing homes they put together. Uh. They really wanted to help their community, and that's how he got his following. Either you were helping or being helped, and you owed Jones your loyalty for it. Uh. Jones seemed to believe that once he did anything for someone, from that moment forward, the person belonged to him, with no right to disagree about anything or ever leave. To challenge Jim Jones was to challenge the Lord and God respond accordingly, quote. The best assurance of loyalty to Jones was that his followers believed that he worked tirelessly to improve their lives while risking his own. This is where things started to get kind of weird, but hashtag that's weird. There uh-huh. were apparently anonymous threats of armed violence to him and his family early on, and later would continue. Quote, Jones knew how to insert himself in controversy, how to exploit black frustration and confront white opposition. But his impact was limited to Indianapolis. He could only do so much there. He wanted to have a bigger following. At this time, there was a lot of talk of nuclear war being an eminent threat. Mm. All over. This is not just with Jones. Mm -hmm. But Jones, having these powers that he had to heal people and to predict things that everyone believed in, said that he knew when it was coming. One of the sources I read said it was coming, that he said it was coming on July 14th, 1967. Very specific date.
0: (laughs) That is remarkably specific.
1: And another source said that it was coming on the 16th of some month, probably September but not sure of the year. (laughs) I just love how different those two pieces of information are. But, you know, maybe he said both. That's also probable. So who Uh knows? Either way, he said that Indianapolis and everyone living there would be obliterated whenever it was going to come. So he started Uh to instill fear in his followers. It was his excuse to get out of Indiana. And it worked. So... He actually, for a stint of time, went to Brazil in 1965 to scope out a place to move his followers to, to be safe from nuclear war. Ultimately, wasn't a great move. Ended up going back to Indianapolis and decided that California was a better option. It was a place of infinite opportunity to not only gather more followers, but to also find safety from nuclear war. Mm -hmm. So in July 1965, Jones and 140 church members moved to Redwood Valley, California, specifically to Ukiah, which is about 70 miles from San Francisco, to give you an idea of where that is. A new group of people were starting to be attracted to the preaching of Jim Jones, and they were white, educated, elite people. Their membership ended up tripling. When they moved mm. there, Ukiah also simultaneously was predominantly a white community and nicknamed by the temple members "Redneck Valley," ah. uh, which I think is funny because it was Redwood Valley, but they changed it to Redneck Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and when a second wave of Black Temple followers arrived, local hostility toward the group and members was much more prevalent. Racism is still happening. Now, some of the people who joined at this time were Grace and Tim Stowen. They were a married couple, and Stowen was a lawyer, and Jones really needed the the legal support from the back end. So he became a really key person within the community at People's Temple, and they joined in Ukiah and had a huge impact, for better or worse, later on. Uh We'll also remember those names. We'll get back to them. Jones preached, quote, I shall do all the miracles that you said your God would do and never did. I shall come and heal you of all the diseases that you prayed for that never happened, end quote. Mm. And he did. People remembered what he did for them and gave him unswaying loyalty and devotion. Quote, even when the temple members had been at its height, Jones made a point of having a personal relationship with every individual follower. He mm. remembered people's names, their secrets, their fears, and Everyone confessed longing or sin to him, and he remembered it all. He had a, like a brain of an elephant. So he would keep track of these things, and he would also keep track of all the favors he was doing for people. So he would dangle it in front of them, and that was his power uh, over people. Mm-hmm. However, what he marketed was not bad. A newer follower noted Jones was, quote, dynamic, totally dedicated to social change. Energy radiated from him. I felt that I had entered a new world. Jones seemed to have powers and an almost unfathomable understanding of the evils in the world and the need to set an example so that everyone could see how to rise above them. In my experience, there was no one else like him, nothing else like people's temple, uh-huh. quote. Word of mouth here it was very powerful. More people started following. And really, Jim Jones talked about socialism. But what that was was technically control. He was obsessed with control early on. He had multiple ways of manipulating people, as we talked about earlier. Uh And he felt that the only way that he could make the biggest social impact was by growing his community to be much bigger and spreading socialism uh, and the word of God as far as it could go. To Jones, everyone needed to have all of the same things. All of the basic needs that humans would have, everyone would receive. But in order to preach it, he required everyone in the church to actually live it. And this is where things get interesting. You were either in or you were out. There was no in between. Right. People lived communally and were expected to literally give up everything. He would put up to 20 people in a home that would normally house six people. People uh-huh. would sleep on mattresses on the floor to have equal experiences Um, People gave up their homes, their possessions, their pensions, their assets, and their paychecks to Jones so that he could then equally distribute it amongst everyone. And a lot of people thought this was a good thing, that it felt good because they were sacrificing for the greater good of everyone. But ultimately, it was used to control people. Right. One of the rules was no sex. We talked about that. Only sexual energy that you could have would be for the cause, not for other people. (sighs) Okay. I don't know what that means, but yeah, I you'll notes. learn a little bit more about that <laughs> later. In order to show loyalty, Jones wanted to know, what were you willing to give up for the cause? So that might have looked different for every single person. And Jones also bragged he didn't, he didn't act in a way that wasn't reflective of what other people were experiencing. He never bought f- new clothes. He always bought secondhand things and only wore the same pair of shoes. And he said, quote, keep them poor, keep them tired, and they'll never leave, end quote. Ew. Ew. Ew is right. This is when you can start to see things taking a downward spiral turn. huh But in the look of good, it actually was kind of evil. Family relationships were the sickest relationships of all. Children were separated from their actual parents and raised by different people. So one man who might have had one child would then have five different children from different parents that he was then raising. And this was key to allow Jones to control other people.
0: Mm.
1: People also had to have permission from him to do literally anything. If they wanted to get married, they had to get permission. If they wanted to get divorced, if they wanted to break up or get into a relationship, nothing could happen until you got actual permission from Jones. And then there was the manipulation propaganda. There were two forms of U.S. governments, according to Jones. Uh. One was public, and one was the real U.S. government. The public one was relatively powerless. The real U.S. government was actually run in secret by white men dedicated to the eradication of socialism and used the FBI and CIA to carry out illegal acts on organizations like the Temple. He always thought that they were going to be attacked and under attack by the FBI and the CIA. And he told everybody this. He Mm. even set up a proto-military youth battalion. Do you know about this? It's pretty wild. It's ringing a bell from when I read
0: the book uh, again when it first came (laughs) out. So it was a few years ago.
1: So the church was super Mm anti-war, except that they needed to defend themselves. For what reasons? Because no one was actually coming after them. Him. But they <laughs> thought someone... But very important reasons! So they had to promote self-defense. So how do you promote self-defense? You get a team of 20 Temple Teens. That's terrifying. Say that
0: 10 times fast. 20 Temple Teens, 20 Temple Teens, 20 Temple Teens, 20 Temple Teens. Am I supposed to keep saying And I wasn't sure.
1: I can't do it, so thank you for doing it. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so 20 Temple Teens... Were selected for special training with compasses, and guess what kind of weapon they were assigned?
0: Uh, numchucks,
1: crossbows. Ew! (gasps) Like what? No. That's that takes like who thought of that? Like that's wild. Um,
0: Choices were made. It's it's just wild. What kind of choice?
1: And the beginning, this was literally the beginning of creating the temple guard that would later be armed with guns. It's just, it's bad, it's bad. This is when it started to go down, right? So Jones, you know, Jones wasn't, didn't think he was doing anything wrong. He would never admit to any kind of personal error. Of course not. He was constantly being lied to by outsiders or, you know, someone else must have betrayed him if something went wrong. It was never his fault. So let's think about, like, historical context here. So in 1968, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. It was a big, 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 big deal. Um, And Jones and a slew of his followers traveled to San Francisco, and he knew that he needed to capitalize on this. Like, what he saw in this opportunity was a way to get more followers, not necessarily a way to mourn a leader's death. Sure. And... He went to attend a memorial for Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. with all of the biggest black churches from the area did one massive memorial for him. And like all of the people from um, Ukiah came in People's Temple and attended it. And they ended up winning over a lot more followers and bringing people out to Ukiah to join People's Temple with them. Mm -hmm. And Jones was welcome in San Francisco. Sure. Sure. He offered, you know, a heated combination of anti-war, anti-poverty, anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist messages, which spoke volumes to a lot of the people who live there. And he also spoke about God and the power of healing. So, like, choose your own adventure. Which one does it speak to? We've got you covered. Um, So he really got a lot of different followers from that. And this is a quote. No one joined the temple with the intent of doing harm or achieving subjugation. Instead, they felt better about themselves by doing good things for others. People's temple socialism was intended to change hearts through example, not coercion. End quote. But later, Stephen Jones, the actual son of Jim Jones, uh, remembers, quote, it was about if you don't agree with us, we're going to convince you. If we can't convince you, you're the enemy. End quote. So it's really interesting to see the perspective there, that you think that you're not doing anything bad, but if you don't agree, then you're the enemy. Mm -hmm. So by 1969, he had 500 followers, and in the early 70s, an extra special one, Kim, who joined in the early 70s. (gasps) That's right. Mr. Muggs joined in
0: the early 70s. I forgot about that. Who's Um, Mr. Muggs? Mr. Muggs was a chimpanzee. Uh, Jim Jones and his family picked up a chimpanzee and they named him Mr. Muggs after the NBC Today Show mascot that was also at some point in time named Mr. Muggs. And they found him in a pet store. Um, yeah, in the in the early 70s. I think it was 71 or 72. And, yeah, uh, and he ended up becoming the mascot. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, I mean, he got quite big as chimpanzees do. <laughs> <laughs> um, happens. I do remember, like, I think it's sometimes misreported that he was saved, uh, from like an animal testing lab or something, but there's no, there's a they, lot of hearsay with a lot no. of these different things. I mean, because that makes for a better story, but no, he was, they True. bought him at a pet store.
1: Noted. Well, so, you know, that's one fun fact also about them is they had a mascot that was a chimpanzee named Mr. Muggs. Mr. Muggs. Um, and in 1972, Jones bought a fleet of Greyhound buses and wanted to tour the country to bring more people in. He actually specifically traveled to Seattle and Los Angeles, <laughs> Yay. both of my cities, uh-huh. um, got a bunch of people to join along the way, and he knew he needed to make more money. Doing these types of trips required income, and when he traveled he ended up making a ton of money and one of the ways that he made money was by selling blessed pictures that jones of jones that jones had blessed for people sure and if you didn't have enough money for a picture he would bless a penny for you and they had these like marketing posters like a penny blessed by jim jones and would like Ew. it was like a circus almost it was insane the way it looked and the photo sales at a single service totaled between $2,000 to $3,000 in 1972. So, like, just think about inflation and what that would be today. Like, it's a lot for photos. So at preachings on the road, Jim continued to do his healings. And this story is wild. So I have to share this one with you. In one case, this one woman had a full leg cast on her broken leg. Mm-hmm. And Jones, quote unquote, healed her in front of everybody. They hammered and cut off the cast and she literally ran around the church, totally fine. And everyone was flipping out and cheering for Jones. Um, In reality, later on, it was everyone found out, not everyone, a couple people found out that this woman was actually drugged. And while she was passed out, they put a cast on her. Uh, and then when she woke up, they told her that she had fallen and broken her leg, but she had no recollection of it. So she authentically thought that she had broken her leg uh, and that Jim Jones had healed her. Uh, but there were people in on it, and they still did it and made them everyone believe it. So again, another way that they got more followers was with these wild healings. Uh, Nothing was as it appeared either, internally. Jim wasn't being faithful to his wife, Marceline. She had a lot of physical limitations due to health issues, and he used it as an excuse to look elsewhere for pleasure, if you will, because apparently he could have sex, but other people couldn't. So he then goes to Larry Layton, who is one of his most devoted followers, and he has a wife, Carolyn. He ends up taking on Carolyn from Larry. And she reminded a follower of the woman from the American Gothic painting by Grant Wood. So if you can think of what that woman looks like, that's what Carolyn looked like. Hair (laughs) slicked back in a bun with a grim Pentecostal essence, if you will. I find that as funny Um, as I do. Yeah, I do too. The second second I read that, I was like, yep, I know that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Jones ended up adopting her into his family and support system. But you would think that like Marceline would be pissed that Larry would be pissed, but neither of them budged. Larry didn't budge because Jones ended up supplying him with a younger, prettier woman named Karen, who funny enough, Jones took on later as well. So sorry, Mm -hmm. Larry, you can't have a woman that Jones wants because he's just going to take her. Um, And initially Marceline was, was pissed. She was not happy. Um, And she threatened for a divorce and wanted to take his, the kids. But, it was bad news bears. Jim threatened her life, like Ooh. fully threatened her life if she tried. So at mm. that point, she settled to be neutral. She, she truly did believe in the cause that he he was portraying and supporting people and knew that for the greater good, she would suck it up and help him. But from a marriage perspective, their love life was no longer. Yeah. Um, now we're going to go back to Grace Stone and Tim Stone. We talked about them earlier. Tim Stone was that lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, and Grace was his wife and, you know, Tim really was in Jim Jones corner all the Mm -hmm. time, really Mm -hmm. defending everything that he did and finding loopholes and making things work for him. And you would think that like the one guy that's got your back, you wouldn't go after his wife, but you know, Jim Jones, it's in poor taste. It's nothing that Jim Jones did was in good taste. We'll just say that. And he went after Grace Stowen. And he had a sexual relationship with her and got mm-hmm. her pregnant. Mm. And she had a son named John Victor Stowen, which would later catapult some drama with the publicity of People's Temple. So remember that little sidebar story. Okay. If you thought things weren't dark yet, things took a darker turn when Jones around 1971 turned to amphetamines to keep Eif. going. Eif. And then he turned to tranquilizers to knock him out. He felt like he had to work at all hours of the day in order Mm -hmm. to make a difference um, and used it in the name of socialism and that the cause, there was so much work to be done, he had to be on these drugs. And if you look at pictures of Jim Jones during this time, he's often wearing sunglasses. Uh, I actually feel like he looks like young Dan Aykroyd, which is a weird, funny if you look it up. Um, and I'll post some pictures on, on the Instagram for that so you guys can see. But um, he would always wear dark sunglasses. And he said it was, quote, Because the spirit of the Lord was so powerful that if anyone looked in his eyes, they would be burned on the spot, end quote. But really, it was because his eyes were bloodshot and like, watery and messed up from all the drugs and he was trying to hide it and at this point not only did the drugs mess him up from a like awake and sleep perspective but his narcissism got worse Uh. his personality became much more skewed and even worse he had a heightened sense of paranoia if it wasn't bad earlier now it was extra bad now the government was really out to get them Uh. And not only did his behavior change, I know I mentioned that he had some sexual relationships with certain women, but he had, like, emotional relationships with them as well. At this point, he started having sex with multiple women to solidify their alliance and loyalty. With every woman he slept with, he became more powerful. And there are some accounts of rape within this as well. Mm. But the women also did not, you know, come out and say anything about it because, again, it's so messed up. They thought it was for the greater good that Mm -hmm. they were doing their part. Um, He authentically thought that he could do anything that he wanted if the goal was for the greater good. And he was also, this isn't talked about very much, but I think very interesting. He was obsessed with homosexuality. He called out men that he thought were homosexuals while bragging about his heterosexuality. Mm. Meanwhile, some male followers claimed to have been offered sex with him. So it was kind of all over the place. Many thought that Joan's behavior was with multiple women was to mask that he himself was gay and just didn't want to come out or face any backlash internally or externally because image to him was everything the way that he looked the way he acted was his temple then we get to physical punishment which Uh. trigger warning here um jones had instituted a rule that no one should ever call the authorities And honestly, with good reason, they were racist and would cause all the black temple members to spend their lives in jail or worse. I mean, to this day, that is still an issue. So Mm -hmm. like I, this could be something that if I were in that church and I was a black person and someone told me this, I would believe it. Um, And so he decided, you know, if anything ever goes wrong, if anyone ever breaks a rule or does something horrible, we will deal with it internally and have an alternative form of punishment members of the people's temple who fell out of line and broke rules suffered greatly. Um, there is an occasion where one man was accused of pedophilia and he had his genitals beaten on a table with a rubber hose until he bled in front of a group of men. Mm. Later peer pressure was used to alienate those who broke rules as well. Mm. Women were thrown into lakes with their hands tied while they were naked, like not great stuff. Um, then the government conspiracies continued and got a bit worse. Jones was convinced that the government was out to get him and people's temple and spread misinformation, now just not not just by word of mouth, but he had an actual um newspaper in the Redwood Valley that was published for People's Temple. And he would print his misinformation and propaganda in that newspaper and spread it out to everyone. Uh. But what was interesting is he used actual events to solidify his points. So things like, for example, assassinations with Malcolm X, MLK, um, just racism in general, how, you know, there were Japanese internment camps. If that happened for the Japanese in the past, Black people were next. They were the next people that were going to be facing internment camps. It was inevitable. And uh-huh. he was portraying all of this information into his, his people's temple, and everyone believed it. The government was going to break up the community of people's temple. They were persecuted from the outside. We have to protect ourselves. That was his, his motto. Uh-huh. And he even said, if they can be assassinated, I can be assassinated. Uh-huh. And then some wild shit happened. In May 1972, everyone was coming out of a church um, Sunday service, a community Sunday service, hanging out outside, having a communal lunch. And all of a sudden, gunshots were heard. Mm -hmm. People scrambled. Jones had been hit. He was bleeding from the chest. Everyone rushed um, into the temple. And Jones was dragged off. Everyone assumed Jones was dead. That he had to be dead. He was assassinated, especially uh-huh. with all this talk that he had been portraying with the newspapers and all the news that had been happening around the world. This is inevitable. He even said it himself, you know. Now, once everyone's in the church, Jones comes out. He's fine. Uh-huh. One of his security guards is holding his shirt up with two holes in it and blood, showing this shirt was shot. But Jones is standing right next to him, totally fine. Uh And he says he healed himself. Ew. Everybody believed it. This scene is like almost directly from Midnight Mass. Like when I was reading this, I was like, are you kidding me? Midnight Mass did something very similar to this. Just like getting someone who is handicapped to stand and walk Same thing in Midnight Mass. So this is a perfect example that everyone believed that he was okay with this trickery. It was fake. Marceline later told Stephen that there were actually blanks fired. He wasn't actually shot. And they faked the attack. And everything that Jones did was a test to see if people would leave or if they would stay. Mm. And the support only grew stronger from that point on. Um, Temple security started being more armed, no more crossbows. At this Mm -hmm. point, they had rifles in addition to handguns. In the early 1970s, there were a variety of local newspapers competing for primacy in the Bay Area, too. So at the same time, they're looking for stories about Mm -hmm. something that would catapult them to the forefront of popularity. And of course, Jones comes up. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: This is a great topic. We should talk about Jones. And they're trying to dig up some dirt on Jones. Of course, Through the Great Vine, Jones hears this and has his followers write letters praising people's temple to the surrounding newspapers, Uh talking about how wonderful people's temple is Uh and trying to counter any suspicions of foul play in publications. It worked, actually, temporarily Uh for now, even though Tim Stowen ended up getting pissed at Jim Jones because of his wife and the the child. He ended up writing a letter to one of the newspapers Uh that they were trying to publish, Ultimately, one article was published, it didn't have too much stuff in it, and everything else that was supposed to be published never was. So Jones starts to see this as an issue, and he creates a diversions team, Uh meaning to sniff out scandal on anyone who's disobeyed Jones and said that he would ruin them. And to prevent people from doing anything traitorous, Jones forced everyone to sign blank pieces of paper. And submit them to Jones Uh as a loyalty test that if they were to betray him, he would write out some kind of confession of a heinous crime and submit it to the police with this signature on it. And it would put them away Uh and they wouldn't have anything left. They would Uh have to leave. Uh So it's just wild to think that that's the turn of events. That's the thought process that Jones would go through because someone wanted to publish an article about Uh him. So he knew that there was a threat. And around this time, Joan started looking outside of the country for a place for his people's temple to thrive. He looked into Guyana as a place that he would refer to as the promised land. Out of curiosity, Kim, do you know why the name promised land was chosen? Yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head. Sorry. (laughs) No, it's fine. So it's because in African-American churches, the promised land was an important motif And so, again, Jones is going to capitalize on the black community and take a thought process that was supposed to be a safe space, that was Mm -hmm. a religious space, and start to call this place where he wanted to take his people the promised land. Mm -hmm. Because a third of his people's temple at the time were elderly African-American women. Right. And he had to speak to his audience. Part of the reason that he chose Guyana was because the popu- the population there primarily was black and the national language was English. And the governments outside of the U.S. would allow for a socialism-based church and it would allow, you know, once he left the U.S., for Jones to have more control over his followers mm-hmm. and he couldn't be po- prosecuted if he was out of the country. So that's where he started to look behind the scenes. While all these things were happening, not many people knew he was doing this. And he was doing his research of where can we go, Mm -hmm. and he decided on Guyana. I'll get back to that in a bit, and we'll talk about that more on the next episode. But while Jones was looking out for everybody behind the scenes, he decided it was important to get involved in local politics, to show his people that he was going to provide action for change. And what's interesting is he got involved with a variety of people, one of whom was George Moscone, who was elected mayor of San Francisco in 1975. And Jones and his followers actually campaigned door to door to help get uh, Moscone elected he uh-huh. even offered his fleet of greyhounds to help people get to polling stations, people uh-huh. who didn't used to vote. A lot of you know, poor people didn't have the ability to get to a place where they could vote. So a lot more people came out, and he had a huge impact on that election. Uh-huh. And so in return, Jones knows, I rub your back, you rub mine. So now Mars- Moscone was in his debt. Uh-huh. In addition to this... It was a person who was in power that could make change. And that was part of the reason why he wanted to have that relationship. Mm-hmm. But simultaneously, Harvey Milk was mm-hmm. around. And I, I never put two and two together with this, mm-hmm. that they were literally in the same place at the same time.
0: Oh, yeah. And,
1: it like, I know about both, but I didn't realize that they were literally yeah. together. Yeah. um, And this is kind of fast-forwarding a bit, but... The way that um, Jim met Harvey Milk was because of Moscone, Mm -hmm. and Moscone had appointed Jones to the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission where he met Harvey Milk. Mm-hmm. In 1977, Harvey Milk was elected to the city's Board of Superiors and supported Jones' pursuit for radical equality. He even spoke at People's Temple Services, telling Jones, quote, Reverend Jim, it may take me many a day to come back down from the high that I reach today. I found a sense of being that makes up for all the hours and energy placed in a fight. I found what you wanted me to find. I will be back, for I can never leave. Mm-hmm. To know that Harvey Milk said that mm-hmm. is so powerful because he was such a huge, huge person in San Francisco, especially as a gay man um, who was fighting the good fight for people that were underserved. And if someone as influential as Milk felt that way, it's easy to understand how other people could also not want to leave. Mm-hmm. And we know that um, Harvey Milk was shot and killed in November of 1978, which is also the same time that the tragedy in Guyana took place. Mm -hmm. A lot happened in 1977. And then there was the New West article. This is the article that got published that really messed up Jim Jones. Um, There was talk through the grapevine of reporters of potential darkness behind the peachy facade of People's Temple, Mm -hmm. and more and more people who had left the church were coming forward talking about their experiences, how all the punishments were happening, and a a lot of the things that they talked about were conflicting with what was shared about the temple from the members and the letters that were written it was really, really bad. It was not good at all. Um, A lot of people who previously had chosen to not speak out because they were scared of retribution now had the protection of larger publications to protect them, knowing that they came out and they all were saying the same thing. It wasn't just one person saying it, which created even more power and more legitimacy behind the claims. Uh And so with that, Um, There was a lot of talk of a phony prophet that was Jim Jones and his faux healings. Jones was tipped off to the publication of the story, and this time, even when his followers went to protest at the publisher, Marshalline also made a public statement supporting the temple. It was too many people involved with a negative experience finally speaking up, and Jones knew if he stayed he would be investigated. It was inevitable. Mm -hmm. So there was nothing good that could come from this. So at this point, he fled to Guyana weeks before he was prepared to go, and he brought hundreds of followers with him. And this is where we're going to pause for this episode, because the history of Guyana. What we're going into as far as what happened along the time that they arrived in Guyana, what they were expecting, and how everything went down, why the um, mass suicide even happened, you can see the momentum growing here and the things that started to go awry. And we'll get into that in the next episode.
0: I look forward to part two.
1: I look forward to part two, but I dread it simultaneously because yeah. we all know what happens. We do all know what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So now you know a bit of the history. We'll get back into how it all went down. But until then, this brings us to... Creepy Critics Corner! Creepy Critics Corner! Kim. What you watching?
0: Uh, I went to an early screening, uh, although I suppose by the time this episode comes out, the movie will be fully out uh, of the movie Moonfall, which was delightful. Um, It's a movie about the moon falling. So, like, if you have any other... Yeah, if you have other expectations other than going in to see a movie about the moon falling, um, why? Like, (laughs) it is exactly what it says it's going to do what it's going to be it delivers it's amazing i loved it um i also actually i i watched uh severin's new documentary on folk horror it's uh Ooh. woodland's dark and days bewitched Ooh. A history of folk horror and my god it's good
1: i heard about that i think i watched the trailer for it
0: it's like it, it's it's Epic. It is like three plus hours long, but it is so stinking good and thorough and well put together. Uh, Like, I'd say, you know, if if you're even somebody who likes horror at all or just likes a really well done documentary about movies. um, Folk horror is a really specific subgenre of horror, but... Yeah, it was, it was really exceptional. So I, I don't have anything but good things to say about it. I think, nice. um, and there's lots of, uh, as any kind of documentary on film, you get lots of titles. And, and so I even found some new titles to add to my Ooh. list watching it. So I was, uh, yeah, no, I, that's exciting for you. I, I highly recommend it was, it was a good time. It's, uh, uh available. I watched it via Shudder. Um nice. I know that the I think it's on Amazon Prime. It, it might be on
1: Prime too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's um, where I
1: think I saw it.
0: Yeah. But I yeah, no, I, I highly recommend I highly recommend it.
1: What you nice. been watching? Literally everything having to do with Jonestown. That's like all I've been watching. That's the book I've been reading for the last like month. Um, which I already kind of plugged both of those things. Uh, I read two books and watched a documentary. Um, but you guys know I have to, like, watch something dumb or, like, not horror-y to break up the, <laughs> the like, dark, heavy stuff that we watch sometimes. Um, so I also watched Jonathan Van Ness's new show, Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness on Netflix, which... Ooh, it's so lovely and funny. If you watch Queer Eye, it's one of the people from Queer Eye. Uh, he, they, she um, is the hair person and just a personality of wonder and, and loveliness. Um but also very, very funny. Um, But yeah, it's really, really great and highly recommended if you want something pleasant to watch and you want to learn about something like figure skating and why is it so interesting or about snacks. There's a whole episode about snacks and like how to eat a healthier snack but still fulfill um, the need to want to eat a snack. It's really, it's something so minuscule but so powerful simultaneously. It's really interesting. Um, Highly recommend. But yeah. The other thing I was watching was the Jonestown, uh, ter- Terror in the Jungle. Mm, that's a great, um, great documentary. I have to say, uh, if you have a hard time with audio or visual oh, yeah. mediums with any kind of mass suicide type situation, you might not want to watch that toward the end. But um, I mean, in general,
0: this is not a story for you, I would say, if, if that's correct. something that's <laughs> super triggering because shit's going to get bad. It's about to get bad on our next episode brace yourself um, but have, yeah have you seen the sacrament I have not it's a Ty West film from I don't know 2013 I'm picking that number out of my ass um, the the 20 <laughs> something I don't know it's like it was the after 2010 it was sometime after 2010 but I think it was like 2013 or so 2014 um, and it is essentially a found footage horror film that uses the Jonestown blueprint. Uh, I mean, alarmingly accurate in a way. Like to me, it actually kind of took me out of it at times because I was like, if I almost wish they'd just done Jonestown if they were gonna go there as opposed to kind of trying to make it its own thing. Like fictional version? Yeah. Um but I I I have enjoyed some of Ty West's movies. Um not all of them, but I mean, like, I, er, there's none that I've been like offended by, but some I've just liked more than others. Like House of the Devil, I really enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. The Innkeepers, I was a little bit meh on, but uh, he's made some interesting films. And the, the Sacrament, if if this is a story that you're kind of intrigued by at all, it would potentially be worth checking out. Cool. Um, it 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 does very much follow what happens at Jonestown. So you already kind of know what's going to happen. So congratulations. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, it's, it used to stream on Netflix. I don't know if it still does. Cause I, again, I watched it back when it yeah. first came out. I can take so a look. I'll take
1: a gander. Yeah. Nice. Thanks for the wreck. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for listening guys. I hope this wasn't, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the super duper heavy part yet. <laughs> it, all, all of it's kind of tough to hear, but we'll, we'll get there together. Um, A little bit of a one-off episode, uh, episodes, plural, um, from our types of topics, but we're just switching it up for you a bit. Um, Having said that, thank you for listening. Uh, You can find us on anywhere you listen to podcasts. Refer us to your friends. We love a new listener. And would love to see any additional reviews. If you like what we do and what we are researching and providing for you, you can support us in a few different ways. You can go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can go over to our Patreon and contribute financially, or you can just tell your friends. You can also find our um, social medias, all of our information, all of our show notes, references, all that jazz on our website at ghoulishtendencies.com. And that's about it. So, thank you for listening and stay.